Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Good morning. Happy New Year. One of my favorite verses around this time of year is Psalm 65, verse 11. It says, You, God, crowns the year with his favor. God crowns the year with his goodness. And this has been a verse that I've prayed over you at the beginning of every year now for four, five, six years. I can't remember when God kind of laid that verse in my heart, but it's what I pray for you is that God will crown this year for you with his goodness. God will crown this year with his favor. Now, this doesn't mean that that because of that, that this may be a year of financial prosperity for you or a year where God's going to give you a nicer car, nicer things. Maybe it will be. And if it is, we give God thanks for that. It may be the year when God crowns your heart and prepares your heart to stay strong no matter what comes in your way. There are going to be unexpected things that happen in the lives of people in this room this year that we never planned for. We don't pray for them. If or when those things happen and it brings pain or grief, it doesn't mean, necessarily mean God has orchestrated those things. But there are unexpected events that will come. But there are also, I, I believe that a lot of what you get out of this year is what you put into this year. Even when it comes to spiritual growth and maturity and development, a lot of what you get out of your faith and what you get from God is what you put into God. There are going to be times where God initiates growth and you don't ask for it, but a lot of times you get what you put into it. So is there any expectation or anticipation in your life to grow in God this year? And if so, what's that going to look like? Uh, I was reflecting the other day, this is my last year where I will experience a full year in my 30s. In 2020, I get nine months in my 30s, and then that's it. I'm done with the 30s. And some of you have been waiting over a decade to have a preacher in his 40s again, or in their 40s, and you're close. It's a couple more years. It's my last full year. And there's some things I realize in my life that my body functions differently now than it did a decade ago, especially when it comes to food and especially when it comes to fast food. A few weeks ago, I had a lunch appointment canceled, and I ended up working through lunch, and it was 1 or 1.30, and I was hungry. And if you work right here at this facility, and you want to go grab something quick, you don't have a lot of options. You got Taco Bell, but I often say no to Taco Bell. You can go across I-40, and there's Burger King and maybe Tops. But this is a day I was like, you know what? It's been a couple of years since I've had Captain D's, so I went to Captain D's. <clears throat> And I got the meal I've gotten at Captain D's my entire life, a bunch of fried fish. I say, what are your two sides? And I say, I want some French fries and some fried fry. Just put a bunch of those crunchies in there. And it was the best decision I made that day. <laughs> and it was also the worst decision <laughs> I made that day. When I uh, was growing up, my pregame meal before high school football games is I went to Jack in the Box, and I would get a sourdough jack with bacon, with curly fries, and a large Dr. Pepper, and two tacos for a dollar, and three hours later, I would play in a game. And it was like it had no effect on my body, but now I go back to Texas, and I go to Dairy Queen, or I go to Jack in the Box, and I feel like I'm going to die. <laughs> when it comes to our spiritual lives, a lot of times our feast, the way we feast, is like a fast food diet. We wake up in the morning and we get our little precious moments, devotional series, and we forget what it was about mid-morning, and then maybe the next time we pray is before a meal. And you can survive for a little while on a fast food diet, but over time, it's not going to be the best thing for your growth, maturity, development. 
So I want to make a commitment to you that when it comes to Sunday mornings when we are together as a church, fast food is the last thing we want to offer up here. We need it to be something of substance and of depth because our witness to the world depends upon our commitment to going deeper with God. So we want to offer up, I want to offer up something from this stage for you that is so much more than some spiritual milk, but something that's going to really have an impact on your life so that we can have an impact on this world. So some of you may have reflected on priorities. I want to jump into a four-week series this morning called Priorities. Because I think everybody here would like to have your priorities in line. I don't think there's anyone in this room who right now you're thinking to yourself, I hope 2019 is a year when my priorities are out of whack. When my priorities just make a mess out of life. So a lot of times the way we think about it is something like this. that Our number one priority is God. And maybe church is right there with it. Or maybe church is number two. And then for a lot of us, the next thing is family or friends or a social life or our work life. And this is how we think about priorities. God is one. And then we have two, three, four, five. I want to push against it this morning. God has no desire to be a priority in your life. God has a desire to be the priority in your life. Whereas not that God desires to be number one. And then you have two, three, four, five. God desires to be it, the priority. And from that priority comes every other priority, but it functions under the priority of God. That we're given all we have to who God is and what God wants of us. So I want to, part of this four-week series, in this four-week series, I want to talk about priorities, but I want to do it by talking about the Ten Commandments. Now, here's the thing I believe, and I've shared this before, but how we read the Bible is just as important as what we read. So what are the questions we bring to the Bible? How, what, how are we thinking? When we come to the Bible, um, what are our motiv- what's our motivation? What, how are we focused on formation? So how we come to it matters. So I don't want to begin in Exodus chapter 20 today. I want to begin in Exodus 19. Now, I know there have been people before, and maybe some of you, and I've had these conversations with people who, who've been really upset when Ten Commandments statues are removed from public places throughout, throughout our country. And I've sat with some of you, and I've had these conversations, and a lot of times people will say something like, Josh, I'm really upset about this. And, and I, usually my response is, I, under, I think I understand why you were upset, but first let me ask this. How many of the Ten Commandments are you currently breaking in your life? And can we agree that we should probably be focused more on honoring the Ten Commandments than we are at getting angry about the Ten Commandments not being in public places? Because I bet most of us in here don't honor the Sabbath the way God wants people to honor a Sabbath. I, uh, I know some of you drop OMG in regular conversations. The Ten Commandments talk about honoring the name of God. And how many times do we watch commercials, especially around this time of year, and think, I've got to have that. Or so-and-so just got that for Christmas. I need that. I need that new phone. I need that new device. And, and the list goes on, right? Do not covet is how the Ten Commandments end. But I don't want to begin in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. I want to begin in Exodus chapter 19 today. And here's how it begins. Exodus 19 verse 1. On the first day of the third month. And I want to stop right there. Some of your versions may have after the third new moon. Do the math here. We're talking about these people being removed from slavery for three months, 90 days. I bet for most of you, when you think about the Ten Commandments or you've read the Ten Commandments, you haven't thought about a bunch of people coming to to this mountain to meet with God who were fresh out of slavery. 
These are people who their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents over 400 years, have, they had been in slavery in Egypt, and now they've been set free, and 90 days later, they're here at the mountain of God. 90 days isn't that long from people who have been released from bondage and from slavery and injustice and oppression. It's not that, it's not that long. Many of these people are right there, 90 days removed. It is still so fresh. Some of them probably still bear the marks of broken bones, of the, the lashings and the marks on their backs from where they had been whipped. And that's just the physical damage of calluses and blisters and who knows what else. And then there's psychological damage and people and children who are coming up to that mountain who were still having night terrors of slavery and oppression. And now 90 days removed. If you've ever been 90 days out of an addiction or 90 days out of a form of bondage or 90 days from a form of abuse in your life, it is still so fresh. It's just 90 days. And in some ways you may look back and 90 days feels like eternity and some days it's like, man, all it may take is one trigger of a memory that can take me right back there. And here they are coming up to the mountain, just 90 days, 90 days removed, just a a few months, and here are these former slaves, fresh out of slavery, and God's, God's going to do a new thing with them. It says three months after three new moons, after the Israelites left Egypt on that very day, they came to a desert of Sinai, or some of your Bibles, a wilderness of Sinai or Mount Sinai. And if you take notes, you may take a note right here. They're coming up to Mount Sinai, and this is where they're going to camp out for 11 months. Some of you go camping, you camp for a few days. Can you imagine camping somewhere for 11 months? The rest of the book of Exodus, all of Leviticus and part of Numbers is a result of 11 months that they are camped out right here at Mount Sinai, which will begin with the Ten Commandments. But then from there, God's going to give them the law and other things and events are going to happen. But 11 months, that's where they are. And in verse 3, you hear about this encounter. And then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called down to Moses from the mountain, and God said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations you will be my tre treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So God speaks that to Moses. Moses goes down to the mountain. Moses goes over to the people. And in verse 7, it says, So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now, for many Jews, for years, how they talk about Exodus 19 leading up to Exodus 20 is about relationships, specifically about marriage. That they are, the way they often talk about this is the, the people of God have come out of slavery and now God is ushering them into a relationship. Specifically, God is ushering into them into a covenant that is like marriage. So God sends Moses to them. To invite them into a relationship. So Moses goes and gives them the message. And their response is, is like as if God invited them or asked them into a marriage. And their response is, yes, whatever you say, we will do. Some of us did this back in like elementary school. And 
I mean, I used to do this back in the days where I may be too shy to ask a girl to be my girlfriend, so I send a buddy to go and ask the girl to be my girlfriend. Last time I did this, the buddy came back and was like, Josh, Casey said you're a sophomore in college and, and you're old enough where you can just go and ask her out, all right? <clears throat> it didn't happen that way. And I don't want to make it sound like God, some elementary school person asking someone into a relationship. God is using Moses, inviting these people into a relationship. And I want you to think about this. These are people 90 days removed from slavery. And now the creator of the world is coming to them, saying, I see you as people who are of worth, people who are redeemable, people I want in a relationship with me. Like these are people who all their lives, had they been pursued at all in relationship, had they been given worth, and so much of the dignity had been stripped from them. And now God is saying, hey, I, I don't care right now if you still smell like and look like slaves. I want to be in a relationship with you. I don't care about where you've been or what you've done or where you come from. I want to usher you into a relationship. This should be a good word for many of you here today. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. The creator of the world sees you as someone of worth and of dignity, someone worth pursuing, someone worth inviting into a relationship. Isn't this a good message for us to give to the entire world? No matter where you've done, there's a God who sees you as worthy. And through the redeeming and salvation of Jesus, you are invited into this beautiful relationship where you get a new name and a new home and new identity. So here's God who extends this invitation. Their response is to receive the invitation, and they say yes. And then you have the six verses where it's about preparation and anticipation. Look in verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death they're to be stoned or shot with arrows not a hand is to be laid on them no person or animal shall be permitted to live only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain and after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people he consecrated them they washed their clothes and then he said to the people prepare yourselves for the third day abstain from sexual relations like for three days the message for the people is to consecrate yourself, sanctif sanctify yourself, bathe yourselves, clean up yourselves, and prepare yourself for, for a wedding. That's what we do for weddings too, right? Like most of us didn't show up at our weddings coming straight from the gym. You get your hair done, makeup on, nails. Guys, you shave, I think maybe we do that. Put on clothes to prepare yourself for an event. God's asking them for three days, you cleanse yourself and prepare yourself for an encounter. I wonder if any of those people, even though surely they had taken baths while in slavery, had they ever gone 24 hours remaining cleansed before they were called right back into some kind of task. And now God's calling them, hey, three days, cleanse yourself, prepare yourself for an encounter. Our good friend Lee Brown passed away this past summer. If you didn't have a chance to know Lee, Lee spent about 20 years on and off of the streets of Memphis. And to the day he died, Lee would have weeks where he would be in a good place and weeks where he would be in a bad place. 
And there were times I invited Lee to go on some speaking engagements with me. It would give us some time just to be together. The first time I called Lee, I said, hey, man, I'm going to speak in Jonesboro tomorrow night, but here's, I want you to go with me, but here's, here's what I'm asking of you. I want you to take a shower and cleanse yourself. And this isn't because I was fearful of my truck or my car smelling like Lee. There have been times Lee's gotten in my car and it has smelled for days. And it wasn't that. It said, I realized with Lee that when he would clean himself, his attitude would often reflect like that. And when he had really bad hygiene, it was often a reflection of his attitude or his attitude was a reflection of bad hygiene. So Lee knew one of the time he said, I need a spiritual discipline this year that I could work on. And I said, this week I'm going to give you a spiritual discipline. I want you to take a shower every day. And when you are in the shower... I want you to take a moment where you give thanks for what God has done for you, how he has cleansed you from everything in your past. And Lee would go on to tell me it was the most important spiritual discipline I ever gave him. And here's God who's telling these people, I want you to clean yourself up and sanctify yourself for three days. God is preparing them for freedom. This is why we baptize. Behind this screen, we have a baptistry, and we go down in the water, and we bring people out of the water, and this is not just so you have your sins forgiven in the past. It's that baptism is ushering you into the freedom of God in the future. It's both what God has done to your past and what God is saving you into. So when God tells these people to cleanse themselves and sanctify themselves for three days, this isn't God saying, clean yourself up because I only deal with clean people. This is God saying, clean yourself up, sanctify yourself because I value holiness and I am ushering you into something so much better. If you were to ask some Jews, what is the most important word for marriage? If we were to ask many of us, what's the most important word for marriage? I think some of the responses we would get would be stuff like loyalty or commitment or time. For many Jews, the most important word for marriage is holiness. It's being set apart for God. It's being set apart for each other. It's holiness. And here's God preparing this, them for this encounter. So look at what happens in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. Now, for some Jews, this is why they get married under a hoopah. It goes all the way back to Exodus 19 where God provides a covering. God provides a thick cloud. It doesn't have walls or borders. It's this opening. It's this covering for the people of God to come under it. And it's there that God provides the covering and the shelter and also where God's going to invite them into covenant, where God's going to give them a law. So there's this thick cloud, this hoopah. And then the very next verse is this. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. It's it's like Moses becomes the father who is ushering the bride up to a mountain to be married to God. So Moses ushers the people up, and then God comes down, and then there is this, there's this meeting. 
And in verse 18 through 20, what it says is, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. And the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. And the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the very top of the mountain. Do you think you would be prepared for an encounter of this happen? Three days of preparation, and then there's this encounter. And the way many Jews teach the Ten Commandments is that the Ten Commandments were vows being recited, which begins with no other gods before me. Begins with God saying, I want to be your only one. I want to be your only one, and I want you to know that you, the people of God, you are... You're my only one. We, we're for each other. So <clears throat> if people were to ask you, what's the first of the Ten Commandments? I think most of us, if you know the Ten Commandments, would respond with no other gods before me. I was sitting with a Jewish rabbi for breakfast this past week. And we were sitting there and uh, we we're talking about the Ten Commandments. And this Jewish rabbi looked at me and he said, well, Josh, let me ask you a question. What's the first of the Ten Commandments? And I wanted to be like, dude, I've been in church for 38 years. Like, I, ask me anything else. But the, the answer is, you should have no other gods before me. And he responded and he said, that's where you're wrong. And in my head, I just had this moment where I was like, well, let's talk about Jesus for a minute and salvation through Jesus and see who's wrong. And I, I'm just joking. I just, but I was like, well, what do you mean I'm wrong? He said, that's not how the Ten Commandments begin. He said, the Ten Commandments begin with this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery. That's how the Ten Commandments begins. And that's a powerful statement by God. So as God ushers them into a relationship, God begins by declaring who he is and what he has done. And this is a powerful statement because I, and God's going to remind them of this. Over and over again, through the book of Exodus, through the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are times when you read the Bible and you see stuff like God said, hey, don't forget, I created the world. And don't forget, like, I brought you out of Egypt. And, and God's, he's not trying to send them back where he's holding something over them. He's reminding them of where they have come from. And this is, let me walk you through it like this. God kept reminding them because we all came from somewhere. And God was fully aware that for people who are fresh out of any form of bondage, there can be a few responses to that that do not honor who God is. Let me walk through a few of them. They could have become the victim. When you're fresh out of bondage or oppression of darkness, you can play the victim card for the rest of your life if you choose to. And the victim card is, woe is me. Really bad things have happened to me in my life. And if anyone else talks about their bad things, I'm going to talk about how my bad things are worse than their bad things. So sometimes you see the victim card played in a form like that, or I've been divorced, but if you mention your divorce, I'm going to talk about how my divorce was worse than your divorce. Or if you talk about your abuse, I'm going to talk about how my abuse was worse than your abuse. Or if you talk about your addiction, I'm going to talk about how my addiction was worse. Or if you talk about your surgery, I'm going to talk about how my surgery is more painful than your surgery. 
then you can play that victim card forever. And I'm not trying to minimize the pain that many of you in this room have experienced, but I do want it to be known that God desires for no one to live the rest of their lives as a victim. He desires for people to be free. Secondly, a response to years of slavery and bondage or darkness could be suppression. Let's just suppress, repress, keep it hidden, disclose, like keep it down, like sweep it under the rug. And so, so what this could have looked like for them is that these parents who are fresh out of slave, uh, slavery could have looked at their kids and been like, all right, look, here's the deal. We just came out of Egypt, but we're not going to talk about Egypt. I don't want you telling any stories of what you remember. Don't even, if I ever catch you mentioning the word Egypt, you're going to be grounded for months. We're not going to talk about the past and the pain of the past, because if so, we may repeat the past, so we're just not going to deal with it. And sometimes we do this about life, right? Let's not talk about racism, because if we talk about it, we're just going to repeat it. Let's not talk about the bad things that have happened, because if we do, then it's just going to bring back bad memories. But instead, what God does for almost every festival is he has people retell the story of being in Egypt. And it's not to send them back into bad thoughts, it's to remind them of what God has redeemed them from. I've sat with people who have struggled in their marriage before, and, uh, and as we begin to process, sometimes, occasionally what has happened are things like, the woman may say, well, 10 years ago, you mentioned this word, or you called me a name. And for 10 years, they had never talked about it. Or 15 years ago, they were in an argument and one was trying to leave the room. And as they did, they kind of shoved the other person to get out of the room. For 15 years, someone suppressed that and never talked about it. And what we can often do is we sweep something under the rug without realizing that when we sweep things under the rug, there's like yeast under the rug and it begins to build and build and build and it becomes this stumbling block. Not realizing that therapy and getting help and having accountability is something that's so good, so much better than just suppressing things. There's a healthy way to remember things. Is this making sense to anybody? The third thing is this, and God would go after this one hard, was retaliation, could be a response for people who are fresh out of slavery or bondage or oppression. Is that there could be retaliation in, in a way of you creating in your new world what Egypt used to be like in your old world. So, so what God does is fresh after this, soon after this, you just flip a page or two. God says this in Exodus 22, 21 through 24. He says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. And if you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry and my anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. You think God cares about this? If you lend money to one of the people among you who is needy, don't treat it like a business deal. Don't charge no, charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. And what else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people, especially the preacher in your church. That's what, that's what it says. <laughs> God is letting them know, like one of the challenges for people coming out of any form of bondage to slavery is you begin to retaliate and you cause the same pain upon other people that was caused upon you. Motivation to obedience is to honor God and to live in a way that Egypt is never repeated in our new world. 
that the bondage and the hurt and the pain of Egypt is never repeated. So this rabbi, when I was with him the other day, he said, have you ever been, have you ever seen a hoopah? I was like, yeah, I've been to Jewish weddings before I've seen a hoopah. He said, well, over time, there are people who began to describe a hoopah as a house, and that's how they would talk about it. He said, but hoopahs were never a house. Hoopahs never had, never had walls. It was open for, for everyone to see. It was even how marriages <laughs> were consummated. Like it was, uh, there just weren't walls. Like it was, it was for marriage and for covenant. But he said the reason, this, this isn't about open marriage. But it's helping people see that marriage is open. It's open for the community. And more importantly, when you are married, it's you, your spouse, God, and it's open in a way where you realize that this is a witness to the entire world. And we often get this wrong in marriage. Sometimes we talk about marriage as about two people coming together, living their private lives in their private home, doing things in, inside. Marriage is a witness to the world of God's faithfulness. Marriage is to be a light to the world. God's forming a covenant with his people, preparing them to be a light to the entire world. This is what it's meant to be. So um, I was speaking at a Christian college probably a decade ago. And they brought me in to speak on some sensitive matters with these college students, and they kept me over for a Q&A that night. They wanted me to talk to college students about, for those who had lost their purity, how they could regain their purity with God and how they could still have something to offer to their spouse when they got married. So this was a topic with college students. I didn't know if anyone would show up. Quite a bit of people showed up for a Q&A. And college students held nothing back when it came to asking me questions. And afterwards, what I wasn't expecting was this line of college students who waited to talk to me afterwards. And one girl sat on the front row, her head, her face in her hands, for the entire time as I passed her and went one by one praying with people in this line. And she stayed, and afterwards, she came and she said, Josh, for 21 years, it's like I've been squeaky clean, never drank, never messed around with a guy, but 48 hours ago, before you have come to talk about this, I got drunk for the first time in my life, and I lost my virginity. And she said, I feel hopeless. I feel, I feel so dirty. I feel so unclean. I feel like a failure. And it was one of those moments I was like, God, what do I offer up to this girl? And I remember I said something like this. I said, what Satan wants you to think is that this is your new reputation or this is who you are. He wants to hold this over you and he wants this to be what defines you for years to come. But what Jesus offers is forgiveness for what we have done. And then he ushers us into something brand new where we still have something to offer the entire world, even a spouse one day in marriage. And I said, and you've got to choose. What's it going to be? Are you going to allow Satan to identify who you are or are you going to let Jesus identify who you are? And as we move into a new year, and we jump into a study in which God is teaching slaves how to be free, we've got to face some of the own bondage in our lives. And where is it God is trying to set us free? If there's a need in the church, we have elders and prayer leaders who are going to surround this room to receive you and to pray over you. And if there's a need that you want to bring in front of this church, we have the time now where we're going to sing a song and we invite you to come to the front. 
May God bless this year. May this be a year where God crowns our year with his faithfulness and his goodness. Let's stand and let's sing. All to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely give I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily verse 3 Terry Miller, one of the shepherds here. If you're
you're visiting with us today, I just want to remind you that we're having a visitor's luncheon, and I think it's probably scriptural fried chicken, so, and there's plenty, so we'd love to see you there, and we'd love to have you come back at any opportunity you may have. I want to thank Josh for the lesson this morning. I love the way he makes things so clear. Let's go to our Father. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We humbly approach your throne, thanking you for the mercies and the grace that you've shown to us, and thanking you for the freedom that we have in you. And Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have here to be here today in this great country in which we live without any fear of people bothering us as we proclaim you as our God. And we are aware, Father, that there's people around this world that don't have that freedom. Some even are killed for proclaiming you. We pray, Father, that you would be with them and bless them. And, Father, it would be your will that that freedom that we have would be available to all. Father, we're about to leave this building and enter a mission field. As we go, Father, I pray that each one of us will be aware that all we say and all we do is a reflection of you. I pray, Father, that we'll make it a priority to serve you and to make it known to all those around us that we do serve you, the only true and living God. Bless each one here. Bless us all, Father, as we go our way. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here.